Hello, and welcome to this edition of Secure Networks, the index packet forensic files with your host, Michael Morris. This week's very special guest is Merritt Baer, Principal, AWS, Office of the CISO. Merritt, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, uh, Merritt Bear. I, as you mentioned, I'm a principal in the office of the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer here at AWS. Um, and I live in Miami, so I'm coming to you from Tequesta, Miccosukee, and Creekland. Um, and my role is both internal and external facing. So I um, work on both the security of AWS as we run on AWS. Um, and that lends me some of the empathy and kind of credibility that I bring when I have conversations with customers, um, usually at the executive level, so other CISOs, um, and then also helping kind of democratize down to their security teams um, throughout their, their operational folks. And I came from US government. I have worked in all three branches of government um, and grew up in Colorado where you are. So, yes, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you joining our, our podcast series here. Um, you. You're a known industry expert for helping organizations design and build enterprise level security at scale. That's really kind of one of the key things we were talking about when I first met you. Let's start with what does that mean to you and what does it look like for an organization? Yeah, I think that, um, so one, I think coming to security with the mindset of like freeing the business rather than locking everything down is really critical, especially when you get into that scalability, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to be a business enabler now that we really do accept that security is a bottom line proposition, which is to say that like everything you deliver, uh, security is part of what you're delivering. Um, and so I think there's no exempting shops from you know, caring about security because no matter what industry you're in, it's an imperative. Um, that being said, I think to do it at scale, one of the ways that I um, focus on enabling organizations is to do, you know, that organizational change that it takes to kind of mature and grow up mm -hmm. and then the technologies that they will lean into as they do that. And those two kind of speak to each other when folks are talking about that shift left move, right, where they're um, not just siloing security as an after the fact bolt on. Mm -hmm. um, what that really also demands is that they're building security into their into their pipelines. And so that takes intentionality. Um, you can't do it by accident. Um, and it takes um, taking advantage of current uh, capabilities. So things like automations and um, the ability to have, you know, um, segmented networks, the ability to have your dev and test and prod, um, you know, be a pipeline and kind of a funnel that gets more and more, you um, you know, uh, least permissioned as you move toward prod, um, taking advantage of some of these kind of inherent mechanisms and the governance at the technological layers that allows you to put those security controls down to really um, marry up your technical controls to those organizational um, maturity models that, you know, that I help folks adopt. Okay. No, that's, that's really insightful for kind of setting the stage here then. So when you're working with companies and, and organizations, what are some of the things you see them most often missing to achieve robust and quality enterprise level security at scale? <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, we're just going to put at scale at the bottom. At scale, exactly. Which is true, which is true. I mean, show me the enterprise that doesn't plan on scaling, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that 
one of the things that folks get wrong is sort of focusing too um, deeply on the like one little technology that they're, you know, adopting today or the whatever one thing that they think is going to solve all their problems. Of course, what we're really talking about is like an organizational growing up here. And so that needs to be reflected in sort of like security as a first class citizen at your enterprise. And that involves having someone who's responsible for security. This sounds silly, but a lot of enterprises still don't really make an investment in having someone wear that hat or have that lens. Um, And then emboldening them to do that work, Um, you know, giving them the freedom to put some, uh, you know, requirements around the enterprise on how we're going to, um, you know, minimize bad days and also ensure that we are kind of growing over time and maturing um, with those, you know, which can only be really documented through the use of metrics um, and how we um, capture the, the idea that we're getting better over time. So I think, you know, the, the biggest um, sort of, you know, failures that I see are folks who want an immediate technical solution to do what is really like a longer term organizational maturity that needs to happen and through which your technologies can enhance and improve your, you know, operational rhythm, but are not going to be some kind of silver bullet. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I, I always come back to, I, I, I'm appalled at the number of people who think security is just about specific tool sets or things like that. There's so much people and processes built around it that, that often te- seem overlooked at times. Right. So right. kind of going there, you know, it's, this whole paradigm and the security push right now is, is rapidly evolving for many organizations, uh, especially as they're adopting cloud environments uh, and, and you know, shifting workloads to cloud. And, they, and then they have this hybrid environment they have to really manage because they're not ultimately getting rid of their, their on-prem pieces. What are some of the unknowns or pitfalls that you're seeing many entities miss or fall into as they do their transformations? You know, I think that um, the key with transformations is like start somewhere. So on the one hand, you know, it feels daunting and it also may feel sort of uncomfortable to Mm -hmm. go from a known to an unknown factor. But of course, like, just because you've been in this posture doesn't mean it's actually better. I think that a lot of times, of course, being security people, we're risk averse, right? And yet I think we don't put enough thought into the cost we're paying for staying in place. Um, You know, what are the costs of not moving? What are the costs, like literal and and metaphorical? You know, how does your posture um, not improve if you don't take that uh, opportunity? And so I think that, you know, one of them is just that kind of hesitance or um, the overestimation of the risk of moving vis-a-vis the the risk of staying in place. Um, But I think in general, you know, there's there's definitely challenge when you're in a you know multifaceted environment, especially because, as you know, security looks different in an on-prem environment than it does in the cloud in a lot of ways. You know, whereas in the cloud you're doing software layer configurations because we, your cloud provider, have taken those bottom layers, the hardware layers of the stack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in an on-prem uh, environment, you still have to worry about the rogue server under someone's desk, and you know, like your your threat models look different, mm-hmm. um, and your visibility looks different. So, you know, your your 
category of assets, which by the way, um, just even having that would be a nice thing, but your category of assets in a um, an on-prem environment will look like someone keeping track of your physical stuff and ensuring that it's up. Whereas in cloud, your assets look like, you know, tagging and other things that you can then execute actions on from an API level. Right. And as you observe your login monitoring, you put in, you know, logical controls, like it just feels different as you're executing on that. So we think, well, it's very common to have, you know, mixed environments, whether we call them hybrid or whatever. Um, I think that, you know, starting somewhere and uh, just kind of uh, solve big problems by solving small problems, right? Yeah. So start with um, putting in some automations around your um, trouble ticketing, let's say. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a, a policy that you never close a trouble ticket until you've scripted the remediation, if it's something that can be scripted. Okay. You know, so like putting in place little mechanisms that allow your shop to kind of mature and also embrace this ability to do more with automation and to take advantage of those logical controls, as well as having to kind of maintain your, your physical infrastructure if you still have an on-prem footprint. No, that's, I, I like that example and use case you just talked about of <laughs> you can't close it until you <laughs> write a remediation script. So how um, how are you seeing SOCs, SOC teams have to evolve uh, with this transformations with the hybrid cloud structures? Um, what, and what do you see some of their biggest challenges in doing so? Yeah, so just to, defining acronyms here, uh, SOC is a uh, security operations center. And I think, you know, the, um, the kind of traditional conception of this is that 24 hour watch floor. Um, and that is still very relevant. I mean, we have one, um, although it's folks who for the most part are babysitting automations, right? So a lot of what we can do is narrow down that human decision-making so that it's not a big gray area that requires a judgment call every time. It's a lot of things that we've already proscribed or put in thresholding mm -hmm. to remediate. So we've got those protective and those remediative controls. And then in the in the middle will be those detective ones that do some alarming. And, and what we want there is to reserve those human judgment calls for like truly novel or high stakes situations. Mm. There will always be some human judgment calls that you make, but trying to reserve those and to kind of whittle down that human decision-making. Um, but I would also say that frankly, like the SOC structure itself is evolving. And a lot of folks um, are, spending their security resources differently. So whereas, as we've alluded to, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, you would have needed to really invest in sort of what I think of as after the fact kind of cleanup. Um, what we're able to do now is to, um, you know, embed security more into the operational rhythm. And, and mm -hmm. by that, I mean, literally having, you know, devs on your, um, innovative side of the house that have security lenses and sort of responsibilities. We do this in our service teams right now. We're at a one to eight ratio, but like that will, I'm sure evolve over time. That's not like dicta. Um, it's just what we have found makes sense from a, a cost benefit perspective right now. Okay. Um, but we have, you know, we have security engineers embedded in our dev teams basically. And mm. then we do, because you're building architecturally 
relevant um, things, you know, those decisions have security ramifications. So things like internet facing, um, you know, assets, which of course you need if you're going to do business, but you also need to be conscious of from a security perspective or things like, you know, identity and permissioning Mm -hmm. um, and escalations and the ability to create new resources and to create new permissions. And, you know, those kinds of things are actually woven into the entire process. And so your security team, of course, is kind of the the hub and the you know the magnet the like center of gravity but they aren't the only people who own security right there's there should be kind of a democratization of that ownership throughout the model right no that's an excellent point actually it's uh on a related note i was talking to one CISO not too long ago said the first thing they recommend to any CISO is to go to their first e-staff meeting and convince everybody at the table that security is part of their job as well so um, no, yeah. That's yeah, I think getting, you know, getting executive buy-in, um, especially before you have a bad day, um, <laughs> is really critical because 100% of executives will say they care about security, right? Um, but actually turning that into a, a kind of holding them to that, turning that into mechanisms, so things that allow you to build security into what you're doing, but also things like blameless escalations, right? If you get them, um, you know, escalating. And we do this for our employees. Like if you, we have sort of sandbox environments that we play mm-hmm. around with so that we know what we're um, advising customers when we're, when we're tactile with our own products. And those often trigger some kind of internal flag if we haven't locked them down enough. And that goes through an automated escalation process. And you, like every, AWS employee, if you ask them, will have some horror story about either them, most likely themselves. Um, but if not them, then you know the person next to them who had a VP answering a page in the middle of the night um, for like a silly, you know, lambda function that they forgot about but wasn't attached to a resource, and that could be a re- you know a, a um, vulnerability. So. Anyway, there's there's a lot of reasons why getting buy-in is really critical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, those other folks who sh- now share ownership mm-hmm. also need to um, sort of share in... <laughs> sharing the spoils, right? So having your budget and having your um, resources reflect the importance that your company places upon it. No, that's that's a great point. So talk to us about how security forensics is changing and, and what issues is that creating for security analysts? Yeah. So I think especially as we move to cloud, um, you know, forensics look like you're logging and monitoring. So now that everything is an API call in cloud, um, you know, that could be your cloud trail logs, which are the logs of every API call that was attempted, let alone went through Um, your cloud watch, which is your CPU usage and other metrics uh, relevant. Um, And then those you can put um, automations upon. Uh, But anyway, so your forensics look like logging and monitoring. even if they take the form of things like guard duty, which is like your IDS, IPS, um, or detective, which does some investigatory um, reasoning on top of it, those are still different from sort of like old school or more traditional forensics. Like you're not going to get into the host on a cloud provider. That's that's our job, right? That's our job to maintain those sides mm-hmm. of the um, of the responsibility model. So um, because of that, I think you know forensics just looks differently. And part of the challenge is just ensuring you're going to have a ton of data, right? You're going to have, like for example, every. Uh, API call to KMS gets logged in in CloudTrail. KMS is our key management system. Well, as you can imagine, 
those can be hundreds of thousands of API mm-hmm. calls um, in a day from a large uh, enterprise. So actually, one of the challenges is just being able to kind of parse through that signal to noise, ensure you're actually getting the data you need to make some of those judgment calls and those kind of continuous improvements, ensure that you're metricing the things that you need. And then, you know, doing that kind of life cycle of forensics, because after you've figured out what happened, hopefully actually your customer never even felt it. Right. Um, you know, Werner Vogels, our CTO has a um, common refrain that everything fails all the time. And what he means by that is not that you should expect downtime. What he means is individual components fail and, you know, technology is imperfect, but you architect for that. You kind of expect it and you build with an expectation of that. And so you can architect in ways that kind of insulate the impacts from your users. And so I think part of the point of forensics is that you're also coming full circle, right? You're doing, we call them cause of error. Um, You're doing retrospectives or hot washes. You're doing tabletop exercises. You're trying to figure out what, you know, was this a known risk? Was this something we should have known about? Mm-hmm. All of those things that kind of allow your shop to actually really grow over time instead of just saying, oops. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've mentioned uh, automation a, a number of times already. Um, and as you know, SOAR uh, solutions are the hottest new buzzwords or platforms or initiatives that many security organizations are adopting or rolling out. What are some of the things you think are working and what are some things that many organizations are still missing as they, as they start to implement these SOAR platforms? Um, okay. I was just going to look the substance. I forget what the acronym is. Security, oh, uh, orchestration, automation, and what's the R? Remediation. Remediation. There we go. You're always uh, keeping me straight by getting my, Yeah. I, I always got to remember to put my acronyms out there. Sorry about that. The acronym I, I try to be conscious of just because it helps folks to be more, um, absolutely. you know, uh, feel more welcome in a space that can be full of jargon. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's our side note here to say, get in the water is warm. Everyone had to learn this stuff at yeah. one point. No one emerges from the womb fully formed with all of the acronym soup in their head. Right. Yep. Uh, So uh, for folks who are new to the industry, you know, feel free to, um, you know, have confidence that you too will find yourself accidentally using acronyms in a year or two. Um, But anyway, uh, come work for us. uh, Right. And I think that the the answer around SOAR is like, that's one of the ways that folks are kind of packaging some of these capabilities. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that they, um, I mean, I think that can be really useful, especially as you decide, you know, enterprises have to basically decide what they're going to build in-house, what they're going to pay for, and what they're going to do without. Um, and I think that, um, you know, SOAR is one of those that if you are not building these kinds of mechanisms in-house, then, you know, it's helpful to go get the, you know, the, the Lego ship already built that someone else has in place. Um, and so I think that those are, you know, what, what we're really hoping that folks are doing with it is that kind of maturity model, right? That you have that orchestration, automation, remediation. And what we mean by that is to, you know, maximize the, um, the kind of pre-judgment calls you can make so that you're not doing that manual human call all mm-hmm. the time. And the only way to execute on that is to take advantage of those kinds of automations. These are like lightweight ones, like Lambda, which is our serverless, um, you know, automation. And under the hood, everything from you know uh, Amazon EventBridge, which is the CloudWatch. Uh, 
you know, events uh, trigger to uh, config rules, which is remediating configuration drift um, to, you know, the basic Lambda functions that you can just write yourself, you know, your Alexa is powered with Lambda functions. Um, so that kind of accessibility is super freeing, but it also means that you need to put those um, instructions, let's say in place. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a shop that wants to benefit from having more of those be more managed, I think that's where you would call in, you know, the use of a SOAR platform. And, you know, I think that uh, there's, there's benefit to, um, leveraging security partners, especially for um, entities that are not in a position to invest in building all of this from right. scratch, right? And so it makes a lot of sense to give that some thought. And usually I end up talking to CISOs um, about vendors just saying kind of like, what are you using today? And and what are they offering that you aren't taking advantage of, but you might mm -hmm. be paying for? Um, so just kind of streamlining your spend and thinking about how you can leverage all of the capabilities that you might be paying for. No, that, that's a great point. I, in my conversations with security analysts and CISOs, it's, it's really around, um, they're just getting started with some of these SOAR platforms. Um, there's so many integration points uh, and, and they're not taking advantage of everything. And so I think, I think you hit it on the head there of, you know, uh, take small steps and, and, you know, do one thing well and then move on to the next thing. So um, in terms of SOC teams leveraging the orchestration uh, processes and capabilities, um, do, do you feel like they've still got some gaps there? I mean, uh, it, it seems in, in working with a number of specific platforms that I've personally engaged with, there's still a lot of... Um, I'll say manual push-ups to to really tune it, right? It's it's not out of the box, right? Let's just be frank. It's it's Legos, um, and so you know, what's your thoughts on on that? Is what what are the gaps that the SOC teams are still running into? Was as they're being thrust upon these automation platforms nowadays? You know, I. Um... I think it depends on the enterprise, but I think that overall, um, you know, the use of like part of the rise of SOAR as an offering is just reflective of the best practice that we all agree upon, which is to define your kind of security run books and playbooks. And hopefully not in the case of a real incident. Um, as Beetle, one of our security engineers says, there are two ways to learn instant response and one will be chosen for you, um, which is to say if you don't uh, anticipate it, it will, you know, be one that you learn in the heat of the moment. Um, so I think that, you know, it's reflective of this uh, best practice now that we should be articulating some of those run books and playbooks. And further, we should be kind of continuously updating those and continuing to take advantage of, you know, current capabilities. So one example would be like the ability to get back to a known good state. What do you have in place today in your, you know, hopefully automated uh, backup and recovery or data loss prevention, uh, yeah. you know, capabilities. And of course, like ransomware is top of mind, for example, how are you ensuring that you're not only doing some of the protective measures around identity and um, DNS filtering or other ways that you're minimizing the, you know, phishing as one of the vectors, but then also taking advantage of the fact that like, you know, storage and um, even reasoning, you know, like uh, compute, uh, 
and the ability to reason about your uh, use of storage is so cheap these days and so accessible and that you can do automated backups in a really seamless way. We have a um, product called Cloud Endure that can do both on-prem and cloud uh, automated backups, for example. Okay. Um, so taking advantage of some of those air gaps that you can do, it doesn't have to be a physical one, um, but using logical perimeters as well. Um, but anyway, I think that this is just reflective of the fact that, you know, we, we, we know that good intentions are not enough, right? It has to be something that you practice, that you have um, a script for, and some of those will be literal scripts, right? Some of these will be things that you can automate away, and some of these will be things that you learn in practice. Yeah. And so you kind of become this like accretion of um, best practices over time as you, as you learn those and as you articulate them. And now if you're in cloud, for example, you're doing infrastructure as code. So you've got your cloud formation or your, you know, Terraform templates, you've got golden armies you can return to. So getting back to a known good state is also part of this kind of virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. If you are kind of pursuing those, um, those end goals in a way that allows you to be resilient. Okay. No, that's tremendous insights. And, um, your your background <laughs> has has probably shown you lots of things not to do. I, I loved your quote there of if you don't choose, it'll be chosen for you. So uh, <laughs> that's a great. So uh, Mara, to wrap up, um, one thing we always like to get our expert guests to kind of give their their forecaster um, insights to our to our listeners. If you're going to recommend one thing for our listeners to either keep their eye on or look out for or really think about over the next six to 18 months. And that's an eternity in the cybersecurity world we're dealing with now. But um, what's that one thing around network and cybersecurity that uh, you really think people should keep an eye on? You know, I think that, um, so this is, this is not the AWS answer, by the way, this is just like Merit Bear's thoughts. Um, but I think there's two things, right? One is going to be, um, as I have kind of alluded to, moving security into that innovative side of the house and having business articulations that look security minded. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, we've seen some regulations and other things that try to kind of put some metrics around that. But I actually think that enterprises themselves are going to consider the security of what they deliver to be an inherent part of their value proposition. And they're going to have to, in order to do that, they're going to have to find ways to metric it and to weave that into their business and to really, like, I think we should expect to see more um, transparency around security business practices because, consumers care. And I, by consumers, I don't just mean end consumers, but like, you know, folks within your, your um, enterprise pipeline. Um, but I think uh, for me personally, one of the things I'm watching is um, security around our ML models, because there's so much that we rely upon that kind of ends up being um, uh, like extrapolated from data sets that we increasingly don't touch or see, or that are too okay. large for us to really, um, inquire within in any kind of meaningful way. And so I think 
Um, I think we will start to see, I just personally think we will start to see more um, concern around data drift and um, even potential poisoning like offensive attacks there where we are, we sophisticated shops are like very attentive to folks, for example, you know, contributing code, but we don't look that much at how we have derived, you know, ML insights and then how we build in, you know, algorithms or other things upon those and then how they may kind of skew over time. So that's one of my areas of kind of concern that I think has moved from like the academic into the real world and is probably not being talked about now as much just because we don't feel like we don't, it's happening, but we don't perceive it. Right. No, that's, that's great insights. Uh, interesting, interesting idea there on the machine learning piece. So Merritt, thank you for taking a little time out of your day and joining us to share your expertise in how to better secure networks. We'd ask our listeners to tune in next time for another edition of the Endace Packet Forensic Files. For more information about Endace's network packet capture platform and our integrations with our various fusion technology partners, please go to endace.com. Merritt, again, thank you for joining. Uh, and thank you, you all you for can, listening. If folks want to follow up with me, you can find me on Twitter at, at Merit Bear. Perfect. Thanks, all right. Thanks, Merit.